the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to be in chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So obviously this morning we're returning to our study in 1 Corinthians. It's been a while. Uh, it's been a month. And so uh, lots happened in this past month with all of our families. And so I thought maybe it was a good idea for us to just do a brief review uh, where we're at in this letter. Um, there's a map up there on the screen, and so uh, the southern part of Greece is called Achaia, and so that Peloponnesian peninsula is part of Achaia, and there's a little piece of land that connects the peninsula with, with, with the rest of mainland Greece, and that's called the Mysthmus, and so right at the base of that is the city of Corinth, and so you can see that there's two, two uh, ports on either side of that little strip of land. It's only... 10 miles long and three and a half miles wide. And so over the centuries, the idea of building a canal was visited and revisited for a long time. Uh, it wasn't actually completed until 1893. And uh, today, while the canal exists, it's too narrow for modern ships. But uh, in the first century, it was just an idea. And uh, there was a lot of that. Nero spent quite a bit of time trying to build this canal. Uh, but in the first century, which is what we're looking at in our letter, um, what they could do is they would take ships and they would unload their cargo and transport it, you know, three and a half miles on land and then put it in another ship. Uh, smaller ships were, were actually moved on land on, on a system of rollers. But uh, what that did is it put Corinth at the center of, of trade, east and west and north and south. And so this is a very prosperous city. Uh, only second to the Olympics was the Isthmian Games that were held there. Uh, but Corinth had a very bad reputation for immorality. Uh, in the Bible, sexual immorality is a big term that encompasses any kind of sexual relationship that is outside of marriage. So if you can think of anything that's going on that's outside of marriage, that's biblically sexual immorality. And uh, Corinth was well known for a whole bunch of that. Uh, they had a temple to Aphrodite that was up on a big hill, an elevation there in the city, and there was a Greek historian by the name of Strabo, and he claimed that there was a thousand temple prostitutes there, and uh, so this was all part of their worship, and uh, you know, if you can work that stuff into your worship, you know, you're, it's kind of like these guys that go to conferences for work to Hawaii and Vegas, but um, nobody ever schedules a, a work conference in Batavia. And so uh, this was a, a big deal there. And even if uh, that figure is suspected to be kind of embellished a little bit, but even if it is, it's still a staggering uh, figure and it paints a picture for us of what was going on in that city. So a well-known, well-documented by multiple sources that Corinth was a rough place and well-known for its naughtiness. Uh, well, in 146 BC, so this is 150 years before Jesus, and 146 BC, uh, if you were to just drop south on the Mediterranean, you'd run into northern Africa. It's a major, major uh, stronghold called Carthage. It's a big city, and uh, Rome attacked it and destroyed it in 146 BC. And there's a big, strong connection between Greece and Carthage, obviously, and so the peninsula in Greece became the next target. And so in that same year, the Romans attacked the peninsula. The entire city of Corinth was burned, all the men were killed, and the women and children were sold into slavery. 
And the city of Corinth just sat in ruins for 100 years. Just nothing was there. And then Julius Caesar in 44 BC, 100 years later, began to rebuild Corinth, but he rebuilt it as a Roman colony. And a lot of this worship and, con and stuff continued there, but it's really unknown to us how much, uh, when we get the reputation of Corinth, how much of old Corinth was really present in the new Corinth. But the best indication we have, I think, is from the Bible. We see the problems that are in the church, and it kind of gives us an idea of the culture that still remained in the city. So it was Corinth, but it was also now Roman Corinth. Now, Sunday school, we talked, uh, we just did an introduction to Philippi, the book of Philippians. And so this brings us to uh, how this letter came about. And we know in Paul's second missionary journey, he, he traveled north into Asia Minor, and he began moving west. And as he moved west, he began to try to go to different places, and the Holy Spirit stopped him and prevented him until he ended up in Troas. And you should be able to see Troas on the map there. And it was there that Paul received this call from a man in Macedonia. And so they crossed over the water and entered Europe. And so they hit Philippi and Thessalonica. They moved down to Berea. And then they went to Athens. And Athens was right before Paul limped his way into Corinth. And when he came to Corinth, he stayed there for 18 months. So he was there a long time. And uh, after that second missionary journey, he returned back to Jerusalem. And in the third missionary journey, Paul again works his way north, and he ends up in Ephesus. And he's in Ephesus for a couple of years. And while he is there, he writes this letter that we're studying to the church in Corinth. Like I said, we are in chapter 6, and so we've actually worked our way through the first eight verses. And so far in this letter, there's been two primary concerns that Paul's been addressing. One is the divisive attitude in the church. And whenever people are not seeking unity and forgiveness, uh, that's a self-centered attitude driven by pride. And so this was a major problem, and this is why there were so many divisions and arguments and conflicts in the church. Uh, the other problem was that there was this continued reliance upon the world's perspective. They were still seeing the way, they were still seeing life from a worldview of, the, of uh, being lost. And because they were doing that, it was incorporating itself into everything they were trying to do as Christians. So they were trying to live a Christian life, but they were getting their marching orders and influence from the world. And so it was contaminated. It was causing all kinds of problems. So as we come to chapters five through six, uh, these two chapters can be divided into three sections very easily. The first section is all of chapter 5, and it has to do with uh, the inaction of the church, things that they are not doing that they should be doing. And this was in regards to uh, a man who was living with his father's wife. And uh, uh, this study of chapter 5 brought up a number of subjects that we took time to look at, uh, which included church discipline, what constitutes marriage biblically, and the necessity of church membership. There's a huge difference between church attendance and church membership. Believers can do both, but church membership. 
I don't know if I've stressed it enough, but I wish I could. The necessity and vital importance of church membership in a believer's life. So this is what happened in the first section. In the second section, Paul addresses the actions of the church, things that they are actually doing. And this was in regards to lawsuits. They were taking each other to court for a number of reasons. And uh, so Paul talked to him about that. And then uh, this is what we studied in the first eight verses of chapter six. It involves, completely involves uh, lawsuits. The problem there was that they were taking their matters uh, publicly into the arena of the courts where the worldview of the world is in operation and the people running the court system are unbelievers. And so this was the problem. And then this brings us to this last section, which is the remainder of chapter six, which has uh, so much to do with uh, the church and its permissiveness of sexual immorality. And so we have to ask ourselves if we fit into any of these categories, are we all in a position to submit to the authority of the local church? Um, are we in a divisive situation? Are we allowing the world to influence the way we say and think? I think all of us would have to agree that that's a constant problem we all battle because we live in the world. Um, and then finally, are we permissive about sexual relationships that are not completely proper in God's eyes? And so in all three of these sections, what Paul has been trying to do is get the Christians to see themselves differently. And so in the first section he says, clean out the old leaven. In the second section he'll say, such were some of you. In other words, you shouldn't be like that anymore. And in the final section he's going to say, glorify God with your body. And so at the heart of chapters 5 and 6 is a plea to abandon a self-centered pursuit that is guided by an old and fallen worldview. So the first eight verses of chapter six has to do with this lawsuit issue in the church, people taking each other to court. And this brings us to verse nine. Let's begin reading in in verse nine of chapter six. He says, do you not know that the unjust will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually, no sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, male prostitutes, homosexuals, thieves, greedy people, drunkards, revilers, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. Some of you were like this, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, verses 9 through 11 connect the second section with the third section. And just by way of review of of the context uh, that sets up these verses we just read, in chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, concerning the lawsuits, the basic idea is this. As a Christian, as a church, we should handle all of our problems internally if it's possible we should handle all of our problems on our own with each other resolve them here instead of airing them out airing out all of our dirty laundry in front of the world 
There's a couple of reasons why we don't want to do that. Uh, the first one is that, and this, this is by way of review of what we, we talked about the last time we were together studying this letter. Um, the first reason that we want to try to handle matters internally is that when we go outside of the church, we take our problems outside, uh, their objectives are differently, are different. They think about things differently. Um, if you go to court, they're not interested in unity or forgiveness or love or honesty. Now, the world will tell you that honesty is the, the rule of the day, but the truth is that on either side of an argument in court, people will do whatever they have to do just to get what they want. So honesty is not at the center of what the world does and how they handle things. And so for Christians to take their matters there is a mistake, if at all possible. And the other reason is because the Great Commission, which is our mandate, uh, requires a great witness. You, you can imagine trying to share your faith with someone in Corinth and, uh, you know, inviting them to church Sunday morning and they say stuff like, yeah, didn't, uh, didn't your brother sue, like, the pastor's sister over a lawnmower? Um, or didn't, didn't your uncle um, steal a bunch of money from the church and you went to court and the court that was held in the, in the marketplace in the Agora and everybody watched it and listened and he had to pay you all back and he never did pay you back and he left town. Isn't that the church you're talking about? And isn't there like some guy that's sleeping with his dad's wife there? Yeah. So you can begin to see the problem. Our witness is very important, and I think all of us do things in life that damages our witness with lost people. But we shouldn't, and we should try to repair those damages and, and minimize the realities of our sinfulness and our failures as people. And so we want to put on our best face with the world and so they can know uh, and hear us. In other words, when the gospel is presented, we're not standing in the way. They can't see the gospel because all they can see is us and our, our messes. So this was the, the heart behind the first eight verses about why we don't take our matters publicly. This is why Paul said, why not rather be cheated? If it can't be resolved, why don't you just take the loss? It's better to be cheated. Why would Paul say that? In our society, if someone wrongs you and they owe you $1,238 and... You know, you take him to court to get that money back. And Paul's saying, no, it's better to, it's, it's the, the, the objectives of a Christian far exceed that because of the Great Commission, the witness of the church. The Great Commission requires a great witness. Now, in these verses that we just read, 9 through 11, there's this list of sins. And this list is identical to the list that was given in chapter 5 and verse 11. It's the same list. Uh, in chapter 5, we were talking about church discipline. Here, we're talking about sexual immorality. Uh, and so the only differences in between these two lists is that uh, thieves is included, and sexual immorality has been expanded into adultery and homosexuality. So he's been more specific about uh, sexual immorality. Of course, those aren't the only sexually immoral relationships that exist but he has expanded that in this list. Now, this, um, uh, this list is uh, not comprehensive. It's not telling us about every sin that there is possible. 
All Paul is trying to do is to draw attention that these are the people you're taking your problems to. There are people who are lost. There are people who do not see life from a biblical perspective. And uh, Paul put this in a proper perspective in, in chapter 6, a couple of verses. He says, don't you know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest cases? Don't you know that we will judge angels, not to mention ordinary matters? And so Paul is moving from an argument of greater to lesser, judging the world and handling the smallest of matters, judging angels and handling ordinary matters. So it's the idea of if you can lift 100 pounds, surely you can lift 5 pounds. And the other thing that this list does is it reminds them and should remind us of our old life. It reminds us of the things that we used to be doing, things that are supposed to be left at the door. Rather than brought in, not only brought into the church, but brought into our lives and incorporated into our lives. These are things that we are supposed to have said goodbye to. Um, uh, in our current climate, in our culture, and what we're being told from every uh, direction uh, is contrary to this passage we just read. We see here that homosexuality is a sin and that Christians should no longer practice homosexuality. Homosexuality is uh, just another sin. It's another thing that we can do. That we should. And we need to be honest about what it is and, and call it what it is. It's not right. And we should abandon it when we become believers. We also see here the good news, which is that God does rescue people from this situation. So it's not hopeless. So we continue to pray for people who get caught up in all kinds of sins, no matter what they are. Now, this list uh, also uh, includes and, and introduces this third section, which is going to be our area of concentration this morning. And it is this third section that uh, regards the permissiveness of, sex, of sexual immorality in the church. What we're going to see in our passage we're going to read, which is verse 12 through 20, what we're going to see is the influence of Greek culture and how the church is thinking. If uh, each one of us was to be examined, how much of our culture would we see coming out of our mouths when we start talking about the Christian life and how we live it? How influenced are we? And we're going to see that the Greek culture was heavily influencing them. So when Paul said, some of you used to be like this, he was contrasting the way they used to be and who they are now. He says they have been washed, sanctified, and justified. So you have been regenerated. You have been set apart and you are blameless. Which is why none of these things in this list of verses 9 through 11 should be found among us or permitted by us. Now, I don't usually talk too much about Greek culture and stuff to re read into the Bible so that when we read the passage, we're seeing that. Um, but there, there's just some, there's some things that were going on behind the scenes in the Greek culture that has everything to do, I think, with what was uh, occurring in this church. Uh, later, we're going to read about women having their head covered and different things like that. So the culture does play an aspect into how we understand this letter. Um, uh, in Greek philosophy, 
and I'm not going to go crazy with this, uh, Greek philosophy is a very complicated subject. And to do it justice, you have to be very careful what you say because you can't make blanket statements about they thought this and they thought that. It's, it's much more complex than that. But uh, there was a man by the name of Socrates, and he trained a man by the name of Plato. And both of these guys felt like uh, man had a soul. But the soul was trapped in the body. Uh, the body was a tomb. And so obviously, in that scenario, the body is secondary. The soul is, is more important than the body, if the body is the prison. And so uh, this set the, sets the stage for how people address that issue. Um, uh, there was a, a, a wide range of ideas about what happened after death. It's not a universal, if you, if you interviewed all the Greek people, they didn't all say the same thing about what happens when you die. Some, some people believe that there were, your spirit was actually made up of very light atoms. And so when you died, the light atoms began to break up and you no longer existed. There was some who believed in conscious afterlife, even conscious, conscious punishment. There were some who believed in reincarnation. So there's a wide spectrum of what the Greek mind thought about what happened after you die. But in life, there was the basic idea of wanting to attain perfection. And a, a perfect man was called a sage. And so you wanted to be a perfect man. And there were two different ways of achieving that. They were very divergent. The, the more stoic approach to, to, becoming perf to attaining perfection, which they believed is not possible, but your life should try. Uh, the more stoic idea was, uh, it was a, a life that was concentrated on virtue. And I hope I'm not boring you to tears with this, but this, in stoicism, they said, you know, life is just so unpredictable. There's all kinds of things that can happen. We have no control over that. And so we don't want to live in fear. So a life of virtue will help you not live in fear. And there's other things that you can control. And so we want to address those things. And so what that ended up looking like in their life was a very aesthetic life, a life of abstinence, uh, starving the body of its desires. So a very uh, aesthetic way of living. On the polar end of the other side was the Ep Epicureans. And they, they thought that... Uh, they thought that... There's nothing wrong with satisfying your body, satisfying the, uh, indulging the desires of the flesh. And so you can see that there's these two divergent ways of looking at things. And uh, if you'll, before we read the passage, just, um, just, <laughs> they have fun in there, aren't they? Um, just, just an example, like look in verse 12. Uh, you can see that this is uh, addressing this attitude of indulging the desires of the flesh. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is helpful. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be brought under control of anything. Foods for the stomach and stomachs for the food, but God's going to do with, do with both of them. The body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. So you can kind of see that, 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 uh, that influence of that kind of thinking. Uh, if you look at the beginning of chapter 7, verse 1, it says, About the things you wrote, it is good for a man not to have relations with a woman. But because of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. And it goes on. And so there's this 
concept of abstinence that's being introduced in a question that they have asked Paul about. So we'll be looking at chapter 7 later, but uh, you can see these divergent attitudes that have influenced the Christian mindset. And so what Paul is trying to do is hit the reset button and say, look, we're Christians. This is not the way we think. This is what's actually true. And so uh, these are uh, things that bring us to the passage so that we can understand it better. So let's begin reading in verse uh, 12, and we'll read through to the remainder of the chapter. Uh, and before I do, um, let me just say something else. Uh, it, when, you, when you find an old manuscript of the New Testament, it was all in Greek, and it was all capital letters, and they all ran together. There was no punctuation. There was no uh, quotation marks or anything like that. It just all ran together. And so uh, what we believe is happening here is Paul is either quoting a phrase that everybody knew and then saying, no, that's not true. Like in verse 12, everything is permissible for me. Like that's a phrase that everybody knows, but not everything is helpful. Uh, or everything is permissible for me is a, is a rendition that Paul came up with on his own that, that uh, summarizes the average thought there in Corinth, something that people were saying. So this is the idea. So beginning of, and he, he's going to do this three times in these two verses. So beginning of verse 12, everything is permissible for me, but not everything is helpful. Everything is permissible for me. But I will not be brought under the control of anything. Food's for the stomach and the stomach's for food. But God will do away with both of them. The body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. God raised up the Lord and he will raise, up, raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? So should I take them, should I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Absolutely not. Do you not know that anyone who, joined, who is joined to a prostitute is one body with her? For it says the two will become one flesh. But anyone who joined to the Lord is one spirit with Him. Flee from sexual immorality. Here's another one of those phrases. Every sin a person can commit is outside the body. But the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. What Paul is trying to do here is to bring balance to Christian liberty, because just because we can do something doesn't mean that we should. He's asking us, is it helpful? Is it profitable? I will, I will not be brought under the control of anything. So there's a couple of ideas there. Um, just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. Um, is it really helpful? Is it profitable? Uh, does it do damage? And then he says, I will not be brought under its control. So there's the question of enslavery. Is something going to enslave us? Um, we're not supposed to be slaves to sin. The, the, the word we use now in our culture is addiction. Well, the idea here in Greek thought is that the body is temporary. So fulfilling its desires like food and sex uh, in the grand scheme of things is irrelevant. 
But Paul disagrees. He said the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. So right here we see that the body belongs to the Lord. Our bodies do. Um, we remember when we were studying the fourth chapter of 1 Corinthians and, and uh, Paul spends quite a bit of time talking about uh, being a servant and his attitude towards who he was to the church there in Corinth. And uh, Paul or Gene brought out that sometimes Paul would refer to himself as an apostle, but he opened the, the letter to the Philippians as a servant. And so he's emphasizing that, uh, you know, uh, we serve each other and leaders serve. We all serve each other. Nobody is more important than another. And so this was a really important point that Paul made right at the beginning of chapter 4 and verse 1 where he, he says that uh, he, he was talking about himself, but he also is talking about all of us. And he said that all of us are servants and that we are all stewards of the mysteries of God. And the mysteries are the gospel, the things that God has revealed to us. And we remember that word servant means an under rower. And so this is someone who is chained to an oar in a, in a warship. And they're all chained together. They're all working together. And one of them is not more important than the other. So imagine being a slave, manning an oar in the hull of a ship. And uh, this is the image. All of them, neither, neither one of them is more important than the other. And they're all working with one goal. And so this idea that the body is not important, uh, Paul says, on the contrary, God is going to raise us, raise our bodies up. You know, Jesus' glorified body has still had the, uh, the, the, the scars in his side and, the, and the, the nails prints in his hands and his feet. So our body is important. This tells us that, um, this is very important, I think, is that, that God has eternal purposes with us. All that we are, our mind, our will, our emotions, our, our spirit, we're given eternal life, it's, uh, and, and our body is given eternal life. Uh, everything that you are, everything that we are as a person, you know, when, when we die, we're going we're gonna to have our memories, we're going to have our emotions, our mind will remember things. It's still going to be us, our personality, our character. Sin will be removed, and we'll have a new body that's without sin, it's incorruptible, but it's this body. It's, I, I, I hate to say it, but it's going to be this body. I'm still going to have this body. I don't know what it's going to look like completely, but God has an eternal purpose for all of these things. And so this is really important because uh, not only does God have plans for our body in the future, but for us now. Right now, everything we have, uh, all of our faculties, our, our mind, our, our, our athletic abilities, our talents, Everything that we have belongs to the Lord because we have been bought with a price and He wants to use it. And so He can't use it if we don't yield to Him. And so Paul is trying to get them to see that God has big things in store for each one of us if we'll just submit to Him. Our body belongs to the Lord. And our God is going to raise up our bodies. And then he says... Don't you know that your bodies are a part of Christ's body? Should I take a part of Christ's body and make it a part of a prostitute? Absolutely not. 
Don't you know that anyone joined to a prostitute is one body with her? For Scripture says the two will become one flesh, but anyone joined to the Lord is one spirit with Him. And so this, uh, this imagery here is intended to repulse us because we are violating our relationship that we have with Christ. It's, uh, we're taking something beautiful and precious that we have with Him and doing something that's so bad. This is why he says, flee from sexual immorality. You don't want to do that. Now, in verse 18, in this phrase, it says, in every other, every sin a person can commit. Uh, look closely at your translations and see how your, how your text says verse 18. Many translations include the word other. Every other sin a person can commit is outside the body. And what the translators are doing there, uh, and they had good intentions, but they're making a mistake. Uh, What they're trying to do is distinguish between sexual immorality and all other sins. But this this is an honest mistake and we should just let the Greek text say what it does. Because this is a, most likely a quote. Every sin a person can commit is outside the body. So this is some kind of a, a statement that someone would make to permit what was going on. Paul says, no, on the contrary, the person who is sexually, uh, who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Now we can say that about a lot of things. Suicide is against your own body. Abuse, substance abuse is against your own body. Overeating and all of the other things that we can do. So there are many sins that we do against our own body. So it doesn't really make sense to include that word other because all of a sudden it makes it sound like this one sin of sexual immorality is against your body but nothing else is. So this is, a, this is a, something that uh, the translators uh, have corrected here in this text that we've been using so long from our pulpit in the Holman Christian Standard Bible. This is why he says, uh, <clears throat> don't you know that your body is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You are not your own, for you were bought at a price, a great price. Therefore glorify God in your body. So, In closing, this is in stark contrast to the views of our day because God does have eternal, and the views of their day, because God does have eternal purposes for our body, both now and in the future. We've been bought with a great price, and so we are not our own. Our bodies are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and even though our bodies are dying and temporary, um, they will be raised incorruptible. So let's pray.